Welcome back to America on Trial. I'm your host, Josh Hammer, back in the saddle now. We are always thrilled to bring you the latest breaking information as it pertains to this most unprecedented and litigation and lawfare riddled of elections, the forthcoming November 2024 rematch between President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. It's been a crazy news cycle, so without further ado, let's just dive in here. We'll start by going around the horn. If you tuned into our previous full-length episode, you heard me give a detailed preview as to the major Supreme Court oral argument this Thursday, the Trump versus Anderson case that is an appeal from the Supreme Court of Colorado as it pertains to the question of 14th Amendment Section 3 Insurrection Clause ballot access for former President Trump. Namely, the question there is whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment precludes President Trump from being on the ballot. Go ahead and check out that episode from yesterday morning if you want a full breakdown of that. I continue to feel very confident about this case, or about as confident as one can possibly be for that matter, both due to the exceedingly frivolous nature of the argument being advanced on the other side to disqualify former President Trump, as well as the extraordinarily capable lawyerly hands that Donald Trump is in, namely Jonathan Mitchell, who is his lawyer in this case, the Council of Record, one of the most intellectually gifted lawyers, frankly, in the entire country. He really is just a gift to the conservative movement. So we'll see what happens. We're going to continue to follow that that case very closely for sure. In other news going around the horn here, it looks like special counsel Robert Herr has completed his own investigation into Joe Biden's classified documents retention scandal. It's funny, if you recall, that Trump's own classified documents case at Mar-a-Lago and the forthcoming federal trial in front of Judge Aileen Cannon here in Southern Florida. That's been getting a lot of the attention, but it really was not that long ago. It was just over a year ago, for that matter, that it turns out that we learned that Joe Biden himself was holding on to all sorts of illicit classified documents, namely at his garage in Wilmington, Delaware, and also at the Penn Biden Center for Global Diplomacy or whatever the the name of, of that Chinese Communist Party funded institution is. And for a while, I actually thought that they probably would not even go ahead and indict Donald Trump on these grounds, because how could they do so if their own guy, Joe Biden, is facing a very similar situation? Sure enough, as we all know, these people have absolutely no shame whatsoever. So they went ahead and did indict Donald Trump on those grounds. Based on the reports that are coming out there, I'm sure there's all sorts of leaks from special counsel Robert Hur and his presumably pri- primarily liberal-leaning lawyers on the team there. It looks like they are going to find that Joe Biden acted negligently, that he acted sloppily, that he didn't follow the proper protocols, but they're going to get him off with a slap on the wrist. We'll definitely be all over that at the time that we have more formal word as to the results of this investigation. But the leaks that are coming out right now when it comes to special counsel Robert Hur's own investigation into Joe Biden's classified documents retention scandal is certainly seeming to indicate that he is not going to get charged. Color me surprised, to put it mildly there. However, as we go to today's deep dive, we we had a bonus episode yesterday teasing this, but the news of the past 24 hours has been, we finally got the ruling. We finally got the ruling that we've been waiting for in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. So this came almost a month after oral argument in the interlocutory appeal 
before a three-judge panel there in the D.C. Circuit as to whether Donald Trump had full-on presidential immunity that would preclude Special Counsel Jack Smith from even pursuing these charges in Washington, D.C. in the first instance, these charges as they pertain to Trump's claims of, of fraud, and they were charging him with racketeering, this grand criminal conspiracy when it comes to the 2020 election, what the mainstream media refers to as his quote-unquote attempts to overturn the election, culminating in the events of January 6, 2021 at the United States Capitol. And we were waiting a long time for this ruling, and sure enough, we finally got it. Not exactly a surprise. Not exactly a surprise in terms of how they actually went ahead and rules here. So you had a three-judge panel, that's standard operating procedure for how it works at the appellate level there. You had Judge Henderson, Judge Childs, and Judge Pan, the latter two of whom are Biden nominees. Judge Karen Henderson is an old-school Republican judge nominated by George H.W. Bush. She's been around the block for a long time or so. She's around 80 years old, has had some conservative rulings over the years, especially when it comes to immigration, but by no means is she a young, fiery conservative judge. You, you do have a couple of those on the D.C. circuit, namely Judge Greg Katzis, but Karen Henderson is, is not one of them. And sure enough, when oral argument came down for this case, she was also very skeptical, as were the two Biden judges. So the fact that this came down 3-0, against Donald Trump saying that there was no immunity and that therefore Jack Smith's prosecution for the 2020 election and January 6th related attempts to overturn the election and this grand alleged conspiracy, blah, blah, blah. It's not a surprise. It, it is not a surprise at all. I would say that I'm slightly surprised at the prolific manner in which it came down. So this is a long opinion. It's a 57-page opinion. They signed it per curiam, which basically means that none of the three judges actually went ahead and took authorship claim rather they all felt so confident in every word and that's typically what procurium means they all felt so confident in the entirety of the analysis that they didn't want to necessarily give one judge authorship credit for it and they basically go ahead and they systematically debunk or at least attempt to systematically debunk President Trump's claims when it comes to structural separation of powers reasons that maybe the president should not be criminally prosecuted for acts that he took allegedly as president or in his allegedly in his official capacity, I should say, as president of the United States. They go ahead and they talk about functional considerations, which is lawyerly, lawyerly language for basically just meaning policy concerns, how much of public policy actually weigh into this. They talk about the double jeopardy claims. One of the arguments that Trump's lawyers advanced was that well, they actually tried to impeach and convict him for this. That was a second of Trump's two impeachments. First was the the greatest phone call ever. You guys remember that? It was the, the infamous phone call with Vladimir Zelensky back in July 2019. By the way, as an aside, I, I actually had literally nothing to object to in that phone call whatsoever. They said, oh, it's a, it's a quid pro quo transaction. Honestly, you want my two cents? I think that we need more quid pro quos when it comes to foreign aid. If the basic nature of Trump's phone call was to say that you, you need to tamp down on this corrupt prosecutor or, or else you're not going to get the aid, heck, I would like a lot more of that when it comes to our foreign policy decision-making. That's neither here nor there. The second of the attempted impeachments against Donald Trump was on 2020 election and January 6th related grounds. And the argument that Trump's lawyers made here, in addition to their sweeping immunity claims, was that this is a double jeopardy clause violation because he was already found not guilty and their citation for that was not a criminal trial, but rather the 
impeachment trial. I, I don't think that's a very strong claim, to be honest with you. I don't think the double jeopardy clause claim holds a whole lot of water. And sure enough, the court definitely dis- dismissed that one out of uh, f- fairly out of hand. I do think that they were much too quick to dismiss the immunity stuff, for lack of a better word. There, there is a lot of writing on this as to the scope of the of the president's immunity. There is a Supreme Court case from 1982 called Nixon versus Fitzgerald, where the Supreme Court held in clear and unambiguous language that the president has quote absolute immunity for civil liability. That's admittedly at civil, not criminal liability, for quote unquote official acts. So acts taken in his official capacity. That was one of the very things that was litigated in this trial there in Washington, D.C., is whether the acts in question were official acts or whether they were political acts. I think in many in many cases, frankly, that is a distinction without a difference when you're talking about the 2020 election. Yes, you're operating in a political capacity when you're talking about elections and campaigns and trying to win elections, but you're also talking about your authority as the commander-in-chief and as the executive who is solely vested with the quote-unquote executive power per the vesting clause of Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1 of the Constitution, you therefore are also acting as a constitutional actor in telling your DOJ and telling your DHS and telling your lawyers or White House Counsel Office, blah, 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 what to do. So the lines really do blur, I think, when it comes to political actor versus constitutional actor there. In many ways, distinction without difference. Then getting back to this case, Nixon versus Fitzgerald. If the court is saying that you have absolute immunity for civil liability for official acts, then the question is, well, why do you not have absolute immunity for criminal liability for official acts? You know, the, the court goes on in the Nixon versus Fitzgerald case. They say, quote, because of the singular importance of the president's duties, diversion of his energies by concern with private lawsuits would raise unique risks to the effective functioning of government. Well, that logic doesn't necessarily simply apply to civil liability. There is nothing whatsoever about that enunciated logic that would not also apply to criminal liability. So then you take that and you also consider the fact that it is longstanding Department of Justice policy, it is undisputed Department of Justice policy, that a sitting president cannot be criminally prosecuted for acts that he is taking. This is, I'm reading straight from an October 16th, 2000 memo from the Bill Clinton Office of Legal Counsel. The title of this memo is, quote, a sitting president's amenability to indictment and criminal prosecution. The one-sentence summary slash conclusion reads, quote, the indictment or criminal prosecution of a sitting president would unconstitutionally undermine the capacity of the executive branch to perform its constitutionally assigned functions. And that was not a new conclusion in the year 2000. They were actually just reaffirming a similar conclusion that was reached by the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel back in 1973 towards the end of the Nixon administration. This is longstanding Department of Justice policy that a sitting president cannot be prosecuted. Now, what the D.C. Circuit says in this per curiam three-judge panel is that when you stop being president of the United States, then you lose. You lose all of that. And that, therefore, you, in this case, you're no longer President Trump, then, therefore, you are citizen Trump, and that that somehow makes all the difference in the world. I am not so sure of that. It is not even remotely obvious to me that 
this is proper as a matter of constitutional interpretation, as a matter of how best to interpret, quote unquote, the executive power in Article 2, Section 1, how best to interpret the take care clause, that's namely the Article 2 constitutional prerogative that the president must, quote, take care that the laws are faithfully executed. We live in a system with a unilateral executive, with a plenary power that is vested in one person, one man, the president of the United States. And you don't want to go about second-guessing him for criminal liability for acts that that man takes in office. Recall that because of the speech and debate clause, another constitutional provision, you actually know it is, it, it is well established that members of Congress, that members of Congress are indeed immune both civilly and criminally for their official acts in office. So for that matter, are federal judges. Federal judges have judicial immunity as well. So it really does raise the question then, why is the president of the United States any different here? What is it about this that is different? And one of the things that Trump's opponents in this case cite, and look, I, this, this, this is a complicated topic. This, this is a genuinely close question. I, I am not pretending like this is a slam dunk, open and shut question one way or the other. It is, a, it is a case of first impression. As with so many other things about the 2020 election, we are in uncharted waters here. That's why our show, America on Trial, is so necessary. But I'm not pretending like, like this is a slam dunk, open and shut case. One of the things that Trump's opponents pointed to, and, and they mentioned this in the procurement opinion that came out on Tuesday, is that Richard Nixon, at the, at the very end, around the time of the Watergate scandal before he resigned in disgrace and Gerald Ford took over, Trump's lawyers or Trump's opponents' lawyers pointed to the fact that at that time, Richard Nixon felt compelled to take a pardon to take a pardon for all offenses, lest he be prosecuted after he left office. And this, this is supposed to be some, some big gotcha by Trump's opponents. I, I, I'm not sure how much of a gotcha that is because it's just pure counterfactual history. I mean, just because he took a pardon, we, we don't know how that would have played out had he not taken a pardon, right? I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast, politics by faith. What is the no spin news all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation we don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are. And it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. And, you know, speaking of counterfactuals and hypotheticals, let's, let's consider this particular hypothetical. Let's say that we establish the precedent 
we established the precedent that former presidents can indeed be prosecuted after they left office for things that they, that they did while in office in their official capacity. Because again, we were just saying how this official capacity versus political capacity thing is kind of a whole fabricated distinction without a difference. You know, how about Barack Obama? What about Barack Obama? Recall back during his own prosecution of the war on terror back in 2011, he had a drone strike against ACAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen, where he droned, he killed by a Hellfire missile, an Al-Qaeda-adjacent terrorist by the name of Anwar al-Awlaki. Recall that that, recall that that man was an American citizen. Now, I'm not a civil libertarian, okay? I, I'm not. I, I, I am a conservative, and for various reasons, I supported. I supported the, the Hellfire missile, the drone, assassin, drone assassination against Anwar al-Awlaki. But let's say that you are someone of, of the opposing political party who's looking to make a statement there. You know, are you going to try to drag Barack Obama and the Situation Room folks, I mean, the National Security Advisor, everyone like that, are you going to try and drag them into court and try to criminally prosecute them for, for homicide, for, for first-degree capital murder, for this extrajudicial killing in Yemen, this drone strike against a U.S. citizen? I mean, is that seriously the can of worms? that you want to start unfolding here? I mean, it, it seems like maybe the answer is yes. So it's dangerous stuff. Recall that as of last Friday, Judge Chuckin, who's the trial judge in this particular case, she removed the trial start date from the calendar. It was going to be March 4th. There currently is not a start date in the calendar. So then the question becomes, what exactly is going to happen next? And we don't exactly know. Now, the court on Tuesday gave Trump's lawyers an extremely swift deadline of February 12th, my birthday actually, this coming Monday, February 12th, to file an emergency appeal seeking a stay at the United States Supreme Court. Now, alternatively, what they could do instead of trying to seek a stay right at the Supreme Court is they could try to ask the entirety of the D.C. Circuit, the full 11-judge court, is what lawyers refer to as sitting on bonk, trying to get them to hear the whole case. Now, it's a whole process. You would try to seek a stay at the Supreme Court. So you could seek an emergency stay while simultaneously going the D.C. Circuit route as well. Or you can just bypass the D.C. Circuit and then try to file a petition for a, a writ of cert at the Supreme Court. You know, Jack Smith himself has spoken a lot. Jack Smith himself has spoken a lot about how this case is going to go to the Supreme Court. So this is going to go up to the Supreme Court one way or another. The only question is whether you bypass the D.C. Circuit on Bonk and go straight there on a writ of cert, or do you try to seek a stay at SCOTUS, at the Supreme Court, and then try to go on bonk in the D.C. Circuit. My way of, of predicting here is mainly by trying to think about what is best for running out the clock. If you're Trump's lawyers, that's really what you want to do here. He's currently up in the polls on Biden. You're trying to just push, 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 and delay, delay, delay. You're trying basically, if, you have a, if you're nursing a three- to four-point lead in an NFL game in the mid-to-late fourth quarter— you're trying to just pound the ball up the middle, drain clock, make the opponents, you know, use some timeouts, things like that. I predict 
I predict that they will probably go for a stay at the Supreme Court to stay the decision and then try to take the D.C. Circuit en banc. Now, they're not going to win. They're almost assuredly not going to win the en banc at the D.C. Circuit, even if it gets there. There are 11 judges at the D.C. Circuit. Seven of them are nominated by Democrat presidents, all of them actually being Obama and Biden. And then you have four Republican judicial nominees, Judge Henderson, who was on this panel. So we know where she's going to come up on the en banc. And then you have three Trump nominees, Judge Katsis, Judge Rao, and Judge Walker. So you're looking in all likelihood at a best-case scenario of an 8-3 to loss at the D.C. Circuit because the partisan split is 7-4, and then Judge Henderson was one of the Republican nominees who was actually even on this panel, and she went for Jack Smith against Trump. The only reason, really, that you would go en banc at the D.C. Circuit, again, is to just is really to just try to slow the clock down and run out the clock. You also raise the possibility of getting a potentially prolific dissent from Judge Katsis, who is the most rock-ribbed conservative judge on this court, or perhaps Judge Naomi Rao, who herself is, is certainly a, a staunch proponent, for the most part, of Article Two power and likes strong presidential claims, so she might be sympathetic to this presidential immunity claim as well. That is my prediction. I think they're going to go for a stay. Trump's lawyers, that they will go for a stay at the Supreme Court to 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 stay the ruling and therefore implement a freeze in, in, in the process while they then decide to either go for the cert route at, at the Supreme Court or, or go en banc at the D.C. Circuit. I think that they're going, to, they're going to just try to run out the clock as much as possible. They would love a prolific dissent from a Judge Katzis or a Judge Rao. They're going to go for a stay at the Supreme Court and then try to run out the clock by doing an en banc of the D.C. Circuit. That is my prediction. I obviously could be wrong. I've been wrong about a lot of this before, but go ahead and take it to the bank, folks. That's my prediction as to where this goes. By the way, final thought, and then we'll leave you on this note. Absolutely nuts, by the way, nuts to leave this with Donald Trump just two days, two days before this huge oral argument at the Supreme Court when it comes to ballot access, the insurrection clause claim. Absolutely crazy to drop this on his lawyers. Those guys are probably not sleeping this entire week. They're, I hope they're getting paid well, guys. I hope that you Trump lawyers out there are getting paid well for your services because your client certainly needs you right now.